Peace to you. Welcome to The Naked Truth. We are going to begin with the second chapter in the new book. We just started the book of 1 Kings. If you want to read along with me, this is like our 17th book. That's how I'm um, listing them here on Anchor um, in case you're interested in figuring out correlating chapters in the, that we've read so far with um, the ones here in um in the listings if you want to look back on those so the first one would be the first six are the gospels the book of acts and the book of revelation then chapter seven is where we began with genesis so um if you're interested in looking back that way and figuring out how to how to figure it out that's how to figure it out so um all that being said let's begin First Kings chapter two, verse one. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon, his son, saying, so it looks like King David's gotten to that point where it's time for him to go. And he's got a message for Solomon. And that's basically, if I remember right, what this whole chapter is about. And it's more shade and shenanigans. It's somebody really showing their colors of who they were all along before they die. Um, and if, um, I seem to recall mentioning it along mentioning it along the way with the different shenanigans that David would do that seemed quite suspect and shady and unfaithful and all of that to the people who were loyal to him. So now you're gonna get uh an all in one chapter look back at those things like the greatest hits and what he intends to do with those people he had those different encounters with to settle scores before he dies. So, verse two. Oh, and um, Solomon is his son, same King Solomon, like wise Solomon, that Solomon. Um, so this is his message, message for Solomon. Verse two, I go the way, start again. Verse two, the way of all the earth, be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. He's saying he's getting ready to die. He's going the way of all the earth. I stop myself from saying it. Um, and, and. So that you understand, I'm not saying I'm going the way of all the earth. God forbid. He's saying he's going the way of all the earth, which basically he means he's about to go. He's about to die. But I stop myself from saying it because if you believe the Bible and the things in it, then you got to know, you've got to believe that there, there's a couple of people who didn't necessarily die. They had alternate endings. That So it, although it seems like death is absolute, that would be, I guess, a little too close to the power of God, an absolute. So instead, there's a couple of examples of people who took different ways out that we've read about um, so far, a couple of them, um, the two that I know of um, anyway, from the Old Testament. So that's why I would not read verse two out loud. And if you've read me before, you know why the whole Matthew 12, 37, where Jesus tells us about words. Um, and so, um, the power of the things we say, so, and their ability to manifest. So to be sure, verse two is saying he is going the way of all the earth. And he's basically just telling Solomon to prepare himself. Verse three, and keep the charge of the Lord, your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do. And wherever you turn. So that's a nice message for him to tell his son to 
remember the Lord, keep his um keep the commandments and so forth, which is good advice. But and it's said in a human sense because he's broken many of those same commandments. Um, who hasn't? And um, so he but he's encouraging his son to stay faithful, uh, even though he knows his time is up. Verse three. What was that? Verse three, um, verse four. That the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So what David is saying is he has a, a contingency contract with the Lord that as long as he and his descendants or his descendants stay faithful, to the Lord, and Lord here is being translated from the name or word, if you prefer, Jehovah, just so we know where we're at with that. So he's saying if his, if they fulfill that faithfulness, then there'll always be someone on his throne. So it's like a prophecy, but it's contingent on uh, David and his descendants' behavior. And spoiler alert, they are not always faithful. They fall away pretty quickly. Verse 5, as people are. Verse 5, moreover, you know also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. So um, David is feeling kind of sanctimonious. And calling out Zariah, uh, and I'm sorry, Joab, one of his most loyal, uh, prominent generals. Um, it'd be like uh, George Bush calling out Dick Cheney. It, it seems that's where he's at. He's, um, but he's he's saying that the things that he has against Abner, I'm sorry, Joab, is that he killed a couple other people. He stabbed one person in the gut. Um, and had his um, intestines fall out. Um, and then the other one, that was, um, that was if I remember right, that was Abner, the son of Ner, that he did that to. Um, and the other one, and I may have it the other way around. The other one, uh, when he found out he was going to, he uh, replaced him. David had sort of unceremoniously replaced Joab's position with Amasa. And Joab didn't take it so good. So um, now he's he's remembering all that David is on his deathbed, basically. And he's saying that he hasn't forgiven. He hasn't let it go that Joab shed blood and has that blood on his hands. But remember, David has also did some blood shedding, too, over the years, as we've read about. So what's his punishment? from one killer to another. Verse 6, Therefore, do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. So he's telling his son Solomon, who's getting ready to succeed him, that uh, he's leaving it up to him to settle accounts with um, Joab, the basically the commander of the army. Um, and he's saying he knows he's wise enough to cook up some justice, quote-unquote, for Joab. Um, so he's leaving it in Solomon's hands, but he wants to make sure that whatever he does, he doesn't want Joab to have a peaceful end. 
Verse 7. So Joab apparently is out living David. Verse 7. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So, um, like we uh, read before in the coup that David faced previously from one of his other sons, uh, he fled uh, like before anything could come of it so they wouldn't have to go after him. He fled, and one of the people who helped him out along the way was this Barzillai. So that's why David is saying, do right by him, because he, he did right by me. Verse 8, and see, you have with you Shimi, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan. And I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. So now David is recalling uh, another person from his past, Shimi, the person who, when we read it before, when David was leaving in exile because one of his sons tried, was um, had taken over the throne and he didn't want to face it, he'd rather leave instead, and that's what he did. And as he was leaving, one of the people who called him out for all of his previous uh Shady dealings, including having one of his soldiers, Uriah, um, killed in war on purpose so that he could take his wife, who he'd already taken and had sex with and had gotten pregnant. That's what David has done. So now while he's feeling sanctimonious, there's that word again, he's um, calling out Joab for what he did and Shimi now also um, it's his turn. That's the person who sort of cursed David out while he was in exile, kicking up dust and uh, clowning uh, David and his whole group as they were quietly leaving the city, fleeing away from David's son, who was trying to take over. Excuse me. Number. Verse 9, now therefore, oh wait, did we miss one? I think we did it. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, we did read that one. So verse 9, now therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, and know what you ought to do to him, but bring but his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So I had to catch myself on that one. Don't want to say bring as if I'm there with him there in that grave. That's what he's saying. He's heading to the grave and he wants to make sure that Shimi follows him. And he's saying when he follows him, unlike, um, just like Joab, who he said, let him go to the grave. Um, however, Solomon sees fit to put him there, but just don't let it be peaceful. He's saying with Shimi, the one who cussed and clowned him, make sure you take, let him go to the grave and that there's blood involved. So he's basically, basically putting a hit out on him, declaring that he deserves the death penalty. Shimi, the same one who he promised that he wasn't going to kill. And I guess technically he's not breaking that promise. Uh, he will not put him to death uh, with the sword was the promise he made to him way back in the day when he said it now he's telling his son who's about to succeed him solomon by name 
And one of the things he needs to make sure he does is kill Shami uh, and Joab also. Um, let him have it too, whether it's in death or something else. Don't let him, uh, don't let him have any peace. Verse um, um, 10. So that's two down. Um, two of the big ones that he really had beef with over his life. Um, over what we read about him anyway. And besides like Goliath and such. So verse 10. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. So now it's saying David has died. He's been, he's been buried in the city of David. His... Um, I think it's Bethlehem. I think that's where it was because it's what it was called in the gospel when Jesus is born. And it is like, uh, if I remember right, the roots of where the family is. Verse um, 11, the period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years, seven years. He reigned in Hebron and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years. So the city of David might actually be Jerusalem because um, I don't think it is, though, but I think it's Bethlehem. Um, either way, they're saying now his reign is over. He reigned seven years over the city, uh, the people, the tribe known as Judah. Um, and then over the whole kingdom, all the tribes collectively for 33 years. Uh, Judah, because that's where, where his family tree is uh, attached Verse 12, then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. So now Solomon has succeeded his father, and he's the king now. Verse 13, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peacefully, peaceably, excuse me, do you come peacefully, pe do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. So um, Adonijah is someone who's had issues in the previous chapters we read about, uh, chapter we read about, and now he's showing up again now. He's one of Solomon's brothers, half-brothers, so it's, uh, I don't know if they, you know, talk like that, but that's what he is. He's one of Solomon's brothers, and he tried to take the throne. He assumed he'd be the next king, uh, but he got a blue face, and now Solomon is in power. Their father, David, made sure to coronate him before he died with a big ceremony. So Adon Adonijah is that one who's um, come now to Solomon's mama with a message. He's saying he's coming peaceably. He's not going for any fights. So what does he want? Verse 14, moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. He, and she says, say it. So he's got a message and he's telling her he wants to let her know something. Verse 15, then he said, you know that the kingdom is mine and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. So now he's going to the king's mama and telling her that she knows rightfully the kingdom belongs to him, even though he just said he knew of the um the decision for Solomon to be the next in line, even though Adonijah presumed it to be him, he knew already that Solomon is who was the intended heir. Uh, so he's saying all that to the king's mama. He can't possibly think that's a good idea, or he's at least got to be nervous. Verse 16, 
Now I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. So she didn't say, yeah, I'll, I agree, whatever it is you want to ask me. She just told him to say what it is, it is, his petition is. Verse 17, then he said, please speak to King Solomon, but he will not refuse you that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. So he done said the wrong thing there. Now he's telling the king's mama, Solomon's mama, that he wants one of the women hired to be King David, uh, his bed warmer. Um, she could have been available to him. She's a young girl, a virgin, it said. It made sure to mention that she's a virgin again and again, and that she was young, and um, that she was available to him sexually if he wanted to. He was an old man, and he just passed away, so he probably wasn't in the friskiest of health. So, um, it's also mentioned that they never did that. They never consummated or had any sort of sexual interaction. So presumably she's still a virgin, but she's still around. So um, he's saying he wants her and he wants the king to give her to him. So remember, women were prop property for the most part um, in the Bible. That's why it's a patriarchal document for the most part. Um, so when a woman didn't when a woman didn't belong to her father, she belonged to whatever man uh, is married to her. Um, and it basically that's just how it works. That's how society was. And society hasn't changed as much as you might think it is. Women are still married and given in marriage and given away in marriage, even now, like by the father of the bride, mother of the bride, whatever the case may be. It's the same stuff, just changing. Verse 17, and he said, please speak to King Solomon. Oh, so he's, that's what he's asked for. He's asking the king's mama, Bathsheba, to go and ask Solomon uh, for this one little favor. Verse, since he didn't get the kingdom that he presumed was going to be his. So it shouldn't be any big deal for Solomon to go ahead and give him the dead king's, um, one of his wives, one of his concubines, one of his side pieces. The Shunammite, as he's calling her, because that's where she's from, Shunem. Um, I, uh, verse 18, I think that's what it's referring to, even though it's spelled a little different. Verse 18, so Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So now Bathsheba's no slow woman. She sees opportunity here. It, she sees the chance to get some payback for um what Adonijah did in attempting to take the kingdom away from her son Solomon, who is the rightful heir. Verse 19, Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. So if I remember, he's still a kid. I don't remember how old his city was at this point, but um, he's not married yet. Um, and he's seated on his throne. But next to him at his right hand is his mama, uh, basically as his uh, conciliare, his wise counsel, his guidance, and someone who he can most likely trust of all people in the world to have his best interest in mind. I know that's not an absolute statement because a lot of women don't care about their kids the ones they keep or abort, whether they keep them alive and raise them, they still don't care much about them. So 
that's an absolute to think that all women care. But um, it, it most of the time, uh, they do care about the child that they have, whether they have it or not, they still care about it. Um, so anyway, she's gone to go see about her son and um, and um, and put something in his ear about a donage up, verse 20. And she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, ask it, my mother, I will not refuse you. So um, Solomon, however old he is, he loves his mama. And so I, I know the feeling. My mama could ask me to do just about anything and I would have did it for her. Um, so um, he's asking, he's asking, he's telling his mama, ask away. What is it you want? I'll do it for you. Verse 21. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. So she knows in asking that she's pushing a button. She's lighting a fire. And she's um, uh, putting a noose around Adonijah's neck because she knows that Solomon isn't going to like hearing anything like that, especially hearing it secondhand rather than man to man. He's hearing it from a woman. Verse, but let's see, maybe not. Verse, she's done what she said she'd do. She's gone and asked just like uh, Adonijah asked her to. Verse 22, and King Solomon answered and said to his mother, now why do you ask the Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah. Ask him for the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, for him and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zariah. So um, Solomon is going off on his mama, saying, well, why in the world would you ask me for a favor like that? You might as well just go ahead and announce that you're in league with all the people who align themselves ultimately against um, Solomon and David and sided with Adonijah when he decided to have his coup and try to pull off a January 6th back then. So I don't think Solomon actually believes his mama is, um, is siding with them in that coup in asking favors for them, for one of them. I think he knows, or maybe he doesn't know. He's really wise. Maybe he can't see through his mama though. Um, Maybe he doesn't know that that's what she's doing. That's how it reads to me, though. So let's see. Verse 23. Then King Solomon swore to the Lord, saying, May God do so, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. So, again, I read what I read out loud. If you've read with me before, then you understand why. Um, but he's saying he swears by God. Um, and that God... Do, do the same thing to him and even worse if he doesn't um, uh, pay Adonijah back for trying him that way. He's outraged at the fact that the person who tried to usurp him, who tried to snatch the kingdom away from him has the nerve now after he's been allowed to live to go in and dare to say that he wants something else too. He wants his father's, his deceased father's there deceased father's virgin wife uh, for himself. Solomon's not pleased. Verse 24, now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah should be put to death today. So Solomon is for sure solemn 
about this, that he's ready to go ahead and take a donor out. He feels like a donor has said the wrong thing and it's going to cost him his life. Verse 25, so King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. So now King Solomon has taken power and he's already carrying out executions. Reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode with Peter Falk, where he's the South American new dictator in power. Hilarious. Good stuff about human nature. It's the same thing. Now that he's got power, he's whacking people. Similarly, similar to how David started to show his colors as soon as he arose to power. There must be something corrupting about the power, or at least the temptation for corruption when you get that kind of power. Um, but now he's already taken one of his enemies out. Verse 26, And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So now Solomon hasn't just kept his head in the clouds. He's aware of all the uh, things that went on when David was alive and uh, in power and uh, you know actively ruling over the kingdom. Uh, now, whether he was aware of it as it was happening, because again, I don't know how old it said he is at this point. Um, if it has even said it, um, but he's aware and he's telling uh, that Abiathar, at least for being loyal back in the day, he'll let him live, even though he too is worthy of the death penalty. And Abiathar, the priest, is the same one uh, whose family was killed because he gave David a place, uh, some bread to eat and some refuge when he was in exile. Now he's getting paid back for um, siding with the with Joab and uh, the insurrectionists. Verse 27, so Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Oh, I forgot about that. It um, When we read about that, um, Eli was the name of the high priest at that time. It was a few books back, maybe a couple of books back in Samuel, I think, maybe in 1 Samuel. Um, Eli was in power, and he'd gotten so wealthy, so rich, so fat on the people that he um, was corrupt, and his sons were corrupt, and he allowed the corruption, and they also were priests, and it got to the point where people hated even uh, the religion. People hated just like now, a lot of people fall away from Christ, mistaking it for religion. And so, uh, and then other people look at religion as what it all is and mistake it for Christianity and reject it all because so much of that is fake. So much of that is not, I should say not fake because it's real for whoever believes it, but so much of it is not Christian. So um, it's a shame that people fall away from Christianity um, because it it's, gets lumped in with religion. But um, so anyway, Abiathar, it seems, I don't know why that came to mind. Verse 27, so Solomon removed Abiathar. He was the high priest. Uh, who does he set in his place? I'm not sure. Let's keep reading. Verse 28, the news came to Joab, and for Joab had defected to Adonijah. 
though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and told, took hold of the horns of the altar. So that seems to be a popular thing to do. When they think they're going to be killed, they go to church, the holy place, the tabernacle, um, and they seize the horns of the altar and uh, basically beg for their life from there, hoping they won't be killed right there in church, right there in the holy place, right there in the synagogue, the temple, the mosque, whatever it is, that's what they're doing, throwing themselves on the mercy of uh, basic religious de decency to not kill someone in the place where you go to worship God. Uh, so that's what he's doing. Verse 29. Oh, and so it just also went over to two different coup attempts. The one by Absalom, David's son, and the one uh, more recently by Adonijah, also David's son. Verse 29. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah apparently doesn't F around. He's the one who's the hitman, the executioner, who when he when the king tells him to, he goes ahead and takes people out wherever they are, even if they're in the tabernacle holding on to the altar. Verse 30. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but here. And Benaiah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. So Joab, the former valiant commander of the army, is now saying, No, he's um, not going to die anywhere. If he dies anywhere, he'll die there, right there at the altar. And so rather than kill him, Benaiah, or I should say execute him, since people like to think it's something different if the state does it, it's still killing. And the commandment is still, thou shalt not kill. So if the state is breaking that commandment, how can the state say it's God-fearing? But that's just my opinion. Here, so Joab is there saying um, that he's not leaving. He's not going. Like, Effie, he's not going. And he's going to stay right there holding on to the horns of the altar. And that's where he'll die if he has to. The message has been taken back to wise King Solomon. What does he say? Verse 31, then the king said to him, do as he has said and strike him down and bury him that you may take him away from me and from the house of my father, the innocent blood which Joab shed. So Solomon's saying, do what he tells you to. He's saying he wants to die there, kill him. And he's saying, when you kill him, go ahead and bury him so that the blood guilt that uh, his father, King David, who's now gone, is guilty of. Um, associated with Joab can go ahead and be buried and so that um, innocence can wash over him and David. Verse 32. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck him, he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword, Abner the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father did not know it. So um, he's saying those are the two uh, innocent bloodsheds that uh, Joab is guilty of. Um, and those are the two armies, the army of Israel, the army of Judah, that um, those commanders were commanders of. And Joab was inhabiting it with being replaced. So, or 
the different events that surrounded him. So he took him out. But that's what he served as. He's doing the same thing Benea is doing. He's the king's hitman. Verse 33. Although, and I guess that's where he made the mistake. Because the last part of verse 32 says that David did not know it. Which at the time, at least according to the narratives, he didn't know that Ab, um, that Joab was going to kill those two people. He actually seemed to care about at least one of them. Um, David, that is, cared about one of those people that Joab killed. So I guess that was the offense, that he did it without the king's knowledge. He killed those two people who were uh, close to the king or valued by the king. Verse 33, their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So um, Solomon, even though he's putting out hits on people left and right now, he's saying it's uh, innocent since he's doing it, since it's basically payback. It's the eye for an eye sort of scriptures that are in the Bible. Uh, that is uh, the Old Testament sort of, as we call it, uh, way of uh, life and what's considered righteous, although it's not always that way. Um, and it's definitely not the Christian way. Christians are told to turn the other cheek. Um, but both things are in the Bible. So people pretend to be confused about which one they should do. And they call themselves Christians. But, you know, it is what it is. Verse 33 is basic, basically him saying that um, the bloodshed by them is what they're going to pay for. It's, come, it's, it's springing up to get them. Verse 34. So Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. So just like Joab said, he got what he said. His words manifest themselves. He said, no, he'll die there. That's what happened to him. He, that's why I'm trying to be careful about the words I'm reading here myself. Um, so um, the king's hit man, Benaiah, did what he was told to do. Verse 35, the king put Benaiah the son of Jehoiada in his place over the army. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. So they got promotions. Um, Benaiah is the new king's hitman instead of Joab. And now Zadok is replacing Abiathar, the one who was there for David when he was exiled. Verse 36. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go from there anywhere. So now I'm pretty sure that the city of David is Bethlehem and not referring to Jerusalem because he's telling him, to, it sounds like he's telling him to flee, to leave, to go to Jerusalem and live there as if it's not the same place where they're at. Um, but maybe not. Let's keep reading. Verse 37. Oh, so it sounds like house arrest is basically what David is calling for for Shemi, telling him, um, but his house arrest is to a certain city to go to Jerusalem and live there. So he basically is on house arrest, but he can have free reign in Jerusalem. But that's his boundary. Don't go past that boundary. Verse 37. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron. Know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. So now he's um, sort of uh, deferring the death penalty for Shemi, telling him, that he can go ahead and live, but he can only live in Jerusalem. And if he ever sets foot outside of Jerusalem, then he signed his own death warrant. Verse 37, for it shall be, oops, sorry, read that one. 
Verse 38, And Shimei said to the king, The saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. So Shimei probably feels relieved that at least the king's not trying to kill him or put out the death penalty on him, carry out the death penalty on him. Um, so he's saying, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'll go ahead and go with the house arrest. And um, and he'll, he agreed to stay in um, in Jerusalem. And I know all about house arrest. <laughs> Been there, done that. Uh, no ankle monitor, thank God. And I completed it, thank God. But it's a challenge. It's it's meant to uh, put you on the straight and narrow for sure and uh, keep you from slipping. Thank God for grace. Um, so verse 35. I'm sorry, verse 38 was what we just read. So Shmi said, cool, and he's gone to Jerusalem and stay there. Verse 39, now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shemi ran away to Akish, the son of Maka, king of Gad. And they told Shemi, saying, look, your slaves are in Gad. So um, not servants, not friends, not family, his slaves, people that people own, as if that could actually be righteous. It's right here in the Bible. And um, you see here, Shemi is someone who owns slaves. And they got away to their freedom, God bless them. Uh, but someone has tracked them down, or at least has seen them, spotted them, knows where they're at. So they're informing on the newly freed, formerly enslaved people to their so-called master. Master. Verse 40, so Shemi arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Akish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shemi went and brought his slaves from Gath. So, um... Shemi said, hmm, I'm going to go get my peoples. And he went and took them back from the freedom they found for themselves in Gath. That's Philistine territory, not Israelite territory. He's gone and taken them back into slavery. Um, and he's left the boundaries of where he's supposed to stay to go get some people who found their freedom. Let's see what happens. Verse 41, and Solomon was told that Shemi had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. So just that quick word has gotten back to Solomon. His ankle monitor beep, beep, beeped. But way back then, somebody was watching and let Solomon know that you had that agreement with Shemi to avoid the death penalty by staying inside Jerusalem. Instead of honoring that agreement, that contract, he's broken it and he's instead pursued capturing people who were enslaved, who... Um, broke away from him and found their freedom. But he's back. Verse 42. Then the king sent and called for Shemi and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you should surely die? And you said to me, The word I've heard is good. So Solomon has called Shemi back to him, and he's recalling to him the agreement they had. And um, that Shimei agreed to it. Verse 43. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? So he's asking him, why have you breached the contract, the agreement that we had about your uh, staying in Jerusalem and not crossing that line? Verse 44. The king said, moreover to Shimei, you know as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David. 
Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. So now Solomon is saying it's judgment day for you, Shimei, for the same things you did or the wickedness you did to David, the calling him out for his shenanigans, his evil, his ways um, is about to happen to him. He's about to get called out for his ways um, and breaking the contract. Verse 45, for King Solomon shall be blessed. And the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So it seems to be a self-affirming message Solomon likes to give to himself, saying it in the third person. Like me say, Misha shall be blessed. Misha shall be blessed. Misha shall be blessed. And um, saying it again and again to manifest it. He's saying he's going to be blessed regardless of these things he's, he's carrying out. And um, that he's got another hit on his mind. Verse 46, so the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So now the king's hitman, Benaiah, has uh, gone out and carried out another hit and killed, I'm sorry, executed um, one more person at the king's order. Um, and that's how Solomon is starting out his um his reign, his kingdom, uh, by taking out the enemies of his father. And Shimi was the last one in this chapter to get whacked. Um, but that was the last verse in this chapter, so that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for the Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. Love you. See you next time. Peace be with you.